0: Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. The show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. The
2: color you see on my head is not the color that grows out of it. Peroxide is my life partner. I choose to be blonde. Over the years, I've been an ash blonde, a sun blonde and a platinum blonde. I've been a California blonde, a smart blonde, and an armpiece blonde. I may safely say, owing to my years of personal experience, that nobody knows blonde like me. This love affair with blonde hair has had its rough patches. One of these occurred a few years ago when I was a graphic designer in New York. Tired of working, I decided to go to a very ritzy grad school to learn about signs and symbols and what they meant. At the time, I was being a sunny blonde with warm, honey highlights. I entered a graduate school class of small, dark, honest brunettes. For two years, I learned about signs and symbols and about what advertising is doing to our culture and about how the media affects the way we think about ourselves. I read obscure, dark-haired French philosophers and played chess long past midnight. I argued with old Marxist designers and lived next door to a jazz saxophonist. In short... I got an education, and yet I remained a blonde. Real education is a radical process. It thumps you on the head until everything you know makes no sense anymore. Then you run around picking up the pieces of your head and putting them back together. The pieces never go back together in the same way. When I put my own head back together after learning about signs and symbols and about how the media affects the way we think about ourselves, The first thing I thought was that I didn't know why I liked being a blonde, and I wanted to find out. When I turned the cleag lights of my education on the idea of blonde, I began to ask myself questions. Why did I desire blonde? Why do so many women want to be blonde? What did the symbol mean? I had to get to the roots of the matter. Putting the prism of thinking in the path of blonde broke it into a thousand shimmering blondnesses. Different kinds of blondes, different reasons for being blonde, blondes from the past, ancient proto blondes, the subject exploded. First I tried to figure out where the image of the blonde comes from and then I began looking at different kinds of blondes, at who they are and at what they mean. For a blonde, is a symbol just as assuredly as a unicorn is a symbol or a cigar is a symbol. But a blonde is never just a blonde. The first thing I noticed when I started looking at blondness was that the ebb and flow of my own personal blondness follows a set pattern which corresponds to the seasons of the year. Perhaps you, the blonde reader and listener, have noticed the same repetitive yearning in yourself. Or you, the blonde lover, have noticed this cycle in a blonde close to you. Let us review this annual cycle before all other symbolic delving, for it is the primary story of blonde. It starts simply enough. Somewhere toward the end of winter, I catch a glimpse of myself and I'm suddenly overtaken by a feeling that a few natural-looking, sun-kissed highlights are just what I need to feel better. At this very moment, being blonde and living in the real world, start climbing their separate trajectories away from each other. For the idea of the weak New York winter sun kissing my hair is nothing short of ridiculous. In winter, the sun never hits a strand. I scurry out to the laundromat with my head completely wrapped in wool scarves. Here the fantasy begins. I get a shiny, laminated highlighting kit from the local drugstore, don its plastic cap, pull pieces of my hair out of the tiny little holes with a crochet hook, apply a severe-looking blue paste, wait 40 minutes, during which I wander around the house, looking like a World War I aviator with hair transplants, and voila! Natural-looking, sun-kissed highlights. I feel cheerier, though no one else notices. A few months later, as spring pushes up the first tulip shoots along the paths of Central Park, highlights are suddenly not enough. I begin to crave a more meaningful blonde and decide to go for the full head application, a commitment of time and resource similar to that of the average 401k plan. This time around, all the hairs on my head will have their moment with peroxide. I make an appointment at Irene's hairstylist. Irene's, conveniently located near my Upper West Side home, has many virtues. The average age of the clientele is 81 walker parking is provided in the front of the salon. This context makes me feel sprightly and youthful. The energetic second-generation manager knows everything and the 30-year history of each woman's hair. There is no thumping music, black linoleum, or condescending 20-something-euro trash hairdresser who got a cosmetology license so that he could pay the rent while exploring his sexuality at clubs after hours. No. Irene's is a calm and peaceful place devoted to hair and its color. The hairdressers at Irene's, after so many years of covering so much white, are particularly adept at shades of blonde. My colorist, Nick, somewhere in his 50s, has male pattern baldness, wears a sensible blue smock, gives a manly shampoo, and goes home to Greece to visit his family twice a year. He has known me in my cycle of blonde for years, but always acts as though we are embarking on a new adventure when I appear in April. We begin. After our yearly discussion of tints, he applies number seven A, dark ash blonde, the tint I always decide on. I sit quietly among the tight hairdresser dryers with a vicious violet goop on my head, and after a wash and a blow dry. Leave Irene's a confident, serious, dark-ash blonde. April fades and May begins. I slowly realize that the operative word in dark-ash blonde is dark. Dark is not the blonde I care about. Denial of the situation lasts for some weeks until friends convince me that I look pale. In June, after a brief period of deep personal questioning on the topics of honesty and identity, I decide to go blonder. Turning back now would be too soon, for I have not achieved the true thrill of blonde. I return to the walkers and to Nick. Nick suggests blonde on blonde. I agree. We put frosted highlights on top of the 7A hair, a process that leaves me reading McCall's and Ladies' Home Journal for five hours with a plastic bag clothes pinned to my head in the company of similarly accoutred octogenarians. I go home. My hair is blonde a nice, comfortable, realistic Connecticut blonde. June goes, and July comes. By August, I have lost all need for realism. Blonde lust is mounting in my heart. I want blonder blonde. Nick reminds me that I will have to submit to double processing, a step financially akin to the cost of a major kitchen renovation. At this point, I would immediately agree to any procedure guaranteed to make me the blonde I want to be. Caution is thrown to the winds. Wearing a face mask and gloves for protection, Nick removes all the natural pigment from my real hair, bleaching it dead white, then replaces it with a color called Lightest Winter Wheat Number 10. It takes. At last, I achieve blonde. No brassy highlights, no realistic streaks, nothing to temper the gorgeous illusion of it all. I look like a light sheaf of wheat for two weeks in early September. And what a luxuriously blonde two weeks they are. For in every photograph, I am blonde. At every dinner party, I am blonde. In every plate glass window, I am blonde. I don't examine questions of personal identity. I'm too busy responding to admiring glances from dark and interesting looking men at the fruit market. But soon the inevitable starts to happen. My scalp, ravaged by ammonia and peroxide, begins peeling. Scar tissue becomes a real possibility. Suppressed thought intrudes. By October, returning to Irene's for help, I find that Nick is off surveying near his country home for the outbuildings that I have financed. Suddenly the mental balance tips. I curse my blonde and foolish pursuit of blonde. I total my monetary outlay. I begin to miss my real personality. I grab a box of hair color from the drugstore and color the exhausted hair on my head back to brown. It is November. I am myself again. I cook a turkey and wear long flannel dresses. When remembrance has worn, I will start the process all over again. I am addicted to blonde. But I know that I am not alone in my addiction. Even the darkest of my friends has suffered through at least one ill-fated try at highlights, though by now most of them have adopted a stance of blonde refutal and castigation. with grapes, I say. Those two wheat-sheaf weeks are worth all the trouble, if properly scheduled, for during that time I am power and sex personified. I am fecund, I am ample, I am fearless, I believe my lines don't show as much. I catch this super-looking at me admiringly while he's fixing the toilet float. The threat of future hospitalization with my scalp in a sling is nothing compared to the response I believe I see in others when I go really blonde. I've succumbed to the power of blonde from the beginning. My poor hair is caught in the push and pull of a love affair with a goddess, a brilliant bipolar goddess, for blonde is the manifestation of a great myth in our culture. My hair has been seduced by her and then given her up for good time and time again. The experience of blondness is the experience of trying to remember a wonderful dream, of trying to cast illusion in concrete, of grasping at gratification while dodging disappointment. No matter how much I enjoy the natural meanness of the unadulterated me, I somehow find myself shouldering closer to the dream, closer to the image of blonde that we see in the movies, in advertisements, on TV. No matter where I am or what I am doing, deep down, I always want to be a blonde. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Natalia Ilyin. Natalia Ilyin is a design critic, a teacher, and a practitioner. As a critic, she's been called outspoken and irreverent, but her irreverence stands on firm foundation. Her students read Aristotle, Thomas Carlyle, and Carl Jung, a full-time practitioner, She's co-founder of the Seattle Brand Consultancy, Emerson Harris, and works with business partner Pam Heath on brand story design and analysis for clients like Microsoft and Boeing. Natalia also lectures about the effects of brand and of living in a consumer-driven economy. She is the author of two books, Blonde Like Me, The Roots of the Blonde Myth in Our Culture, which my introductory monologue was taken and chasing the perfect thoughts on modernist design of our time. Welcome, Natalia. Hi, thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for what is now my number one favorite (laughs) monologue. Thank you so much for giving me the permission to read your extraordinary introduction to Blonde Like Me.
1: Oh, Debbie, you sounded as though you wrote it.
2: Well, Natalia, I have to tell you, it's almost as if you went into my little brain <laughs> and took out my entire life and wrote it down in your introduction. <laughs> I, have, I have interviewed nearly 100 people on the show before, and I have actually never read anybody else's introduction as my monologue, but I read your books. And I thought, my God, this woman is an incredible writer. (laughs) There is no way that any of my teenage anecdotes about my son and experiences and my experiences trying out red hair and brown hair and all the various shades of blonde could ever be as funny and as interesting and as authentic as Natalia's. So thank you for letting me read it.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you so much, David. But, you know, it's a universal experience. That's why, I mean, I can't believe that book is still in print. Oh, it's it's such a great book. It's happened to all of us, any of us who have been addicted to blondes. Well, one of the
2: things that that you wrote in the monologue that I read, you say, for a blonde is a symbol just as assuredly as a unicorn is a symbol, but a blonde is never just a blonde. So you have to tell me a little bit more about what you mean
1: by that. Well, you know, in semiotics we talk about how um, a really strong sign in the culture is a sign that can mean two opposite things at once that assures its longevity. And one of the things about the blonde is that she can mean a number of different things at one time. And so uh, she is, for that reason, an extremely powerful sign in the culture.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that's, I think, why I latched on to her in the first place. You know, people think, oh, my Lord, this woman has some sort of, like, thing about being a blonde. Um, I'm actually, obviously, not a blonde. But when I was in grad school, I became very interested in the large icons in our culture. And I wrote a book that was bits and pieces about all these different kinds of icons. And when my agent sent it around, everybody sort of looked at this book like, what the heck is this? And Except for one woman, whose name is Carolyn Sutton. She was an editor, and she said, uh, the rest of this book, I, I don't know what to do with it, but if she writes about her experiences with the blonde, then I will, I will publish that as a book. And that's how that book got published. You know, to be about an icon in the culture is sort of a strange way to get a book published.
2: Now, you, you said something just a moment ago about um, symbols that are um, that have a sort of duality to them, right? And and I, I read in an interview that that uh, you participated in that you said that people want to step inside symbols that encompass opposites, and I was really interested in that. I was wondering why why is that duality necessary? I think oh. Gosh,
1: I hate when you ask these really hard questions. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. Some blonde type questions. I... <laughs> we can go back to that too. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the thing I think about people is that we are always seeking balance and we are seeking balance not only in our lives, our day-to-day lives, but also in what we interpret. For instance, if we see... One thing, we also want to see the other thing. So that's what I mean when I say they want to step into symbols that contain opposites. Because in those symbols, we find balance. Does so that make sense?
2: Yeah. I, I was, do you, I, I know that um, human beings invest an enormous amount in things. Um, more so than any other species on the planet. And maybe we're the only species on the planet that really invests that much in things. Right. Do you think that that's something that's that's been wired into our DNA? Where does that need come from?
1: The need for things. Well, you know, some people need fewer things than others. Yes. And if you look at us in our culture, we think we need all kinds of things. Uh, and so then you're going to just jump right into a Conversation about consumerism and how it—you know—the juggernaut that drives our economy and how many things a person really needs. I mean, if you look at Tisna Han, Han needs a robe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where he is with things.
2: Yeah. Now that we're in this uh, recession, of course, there's been so many articles about—you know—how much do we really need?
1: Right. So to speak. But it's a really great question, Debbie, because we do need things because people trans. Meaning and emotion onto things. We don't. It's not that we need every uh, electronic gizmo ever created, but we have a tendency as humans to place meaning into other objects. That's how we remember as a tribe. Mm. That's how we remember. So we place meaning, for instance, into alphabets, right? Right. And into they like um ways to track experience, the ways that so that other people can track our experience or we can, I'm looking, I'm sitting here in my studio right now and I'm looking at the sofa the sofa, my great great grandfather died on that sofa so when I look at that sofa, I mean I don't think of him dying, but I do think of him Mm -hmm. you know, it holds meaning for me, so we do need some things around us which give us a sense of whom we are
2: In. In Blonde Like Me, you write that you believe that there are two kinds of people in the world. <laughs> the, the kind who look for symbols and images and metaphors, who find a reason for life and all the subtle ways that humankind make meaning, and then the people who think that everything in life is like the train schedule or the New Haven line, read across, read down, and there is your answer. Do you find that um, they that these two types of people are attracted to each other, or do you think that the symbol um, searchers are are more attracted to other symbol
1: searchers? You know, that that would make a great title, The Symbol Searchers. I think (laughs) you're going to have to write. Your next book needs to be about that. Um, I find, I can only talk about my own experience. Mm. I find that I am attracted to people who are exactly opposite from me that way. And our train schedule types, but deeply, I need to be with people who understand my uh, need to uh, uh, see everything as a metaphor. Yeah, I, I just thought of a, a, a friend of mine in New York named uh, Dr. Gotzig and he's a he's a psychologist. Said to me once, Natalia. It's really great that you're interested in the meaning of objects and this sort of thing, but just remember that when everything starts to mean something, that's called schizophrenia.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, I'm I'm reading a really interesting book right now. Um, it's called uh, Is God Was God a Mathematician or Is God a Mathematician? And in the book, the author talks very much about symbols and the symbols that numbers are. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. And in in the book, he he asks the question, did humans discover mathematics, or did we invent mathematics? Oh, Which, what an
1: interesting question. Isn't that a really interesting question? You know you what mean? it reminds me of? Uh, what is that? That's an interesting question. Um, it reminds me of of, that, of whether we invented the alphabet or whether the alphabet, um, I'm invented not going to say invented us, us but right. it, we Did we learn to track and from tracking signs create alphabet? Did we learn to read before we create the alphabet? Or did it is the same question, which is, do symbol systems come upon us or do we invent them? Right. Um, And I think that we recognize them. We don't invent them.
2: Well, I certainly think that I mean I, I had a not an argument with somebody about this, but certainly a, a robust discussion <coughs> about about whether or not we discovered mathematics or invented mathematics and and, and her opinion was that we had absolutely um invented mathematics. Huh. And I said, But if you put one one thing next to another thing, if it's just a, a seed or even a planet, one planet next to another planet, then there are two planets. How is that in any way inventable or interpretable? And and I think that her perspective is totally that it's still you. our our construct.
1: I totally agree with you. And what you're really seeing there when you put the one planet against the other planet is relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the one thing that humans have over other uh, uh, other species that we've recognized so far is the uh, realization of relationship. And that's actually what makes design interesting to me. It's not so much design, oh, what a pretty object, but it's recognition of relationship. that we see the relationship between type and image, or we Mm -hmm. see the relationship between the construct and the audience. Well,
2: that's also what I find in many ways beautiful and troubling about design, because there really is no empirical... um, Empirical way of assessing design, you know, one plus one, Does not we, we kind of know it's two. But when you look at a particular style of design, it's highly interpretable. And it's something that anyone could weigh in on, those that are educated, those that aren't, those that are aware, those that aren't. Some people will assess something by the way it makes them feel. Some will assess it by the way it makes them think. And so right. there really is no one way of
1: assessing design at all. And, and this isn't always bothered people for years you can't yeah. just say oh this is how, what it's uh, contributing to your bottom line right exactly exactly
2: one of the other things that that you write about in um, in blonde like me you say that that myths are cultural stories and they teach us who we are, how to react to things, how to be. And also that the first thing that they teach you in semiotics boot camp <coughs> is that whatever message you think you are sending out loud and clear as a bell is not what your audience is hearing. And I found that incredibly fascinating. I I remember this realization when I was in my 20s. I had just moved to Manhattan and was trying to sort of be a person. And I remember this, this realization of, of suddenly finding out that I was just so obvious that anybody that saw me would just know how obviously I was trying so yeah. damn hard to be a person.
1: But that wasn't true because that was your interpretant. You know, semiotics, for those of us, for those out there who do not spend their time thinking about symbols, semiotics is the study of signs and symbols and the way they work in the culture.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's, a,
1: it's a division of sem- semantics, really. And it's in the last 20, 25 years, it's been applied to design a lot because there are certain uh, ways that you can uh, divvy up culture that are very valuable to designers. Right. So that's why you and I are talking about semiotics. Right.
2: Now, um, in, why? what made you decide to go into semiotics? What made you decide to study semiotics? It's such a such an incredibly rich and complex discipline.
1: Well, I'll tell you.
2: I mean, you started off as a designer.
1: I did. I was a designer in New York for quite a few years and I knew nothing about design. I had just sort of talked my way into this job in a music company and I was sort of stealing with both hands for years. And honest to goodness, I really didn't know anything about it at all. So I decided to go to grad school and I thought what I was gonna do was learn more about design and then become more of a designer. But of course, I went to grad school and realized that I I really wasn't a designer and I was a writer. Mm -hmm. You figure those things out. And the reason I went there and the reason I was interested in semiotics is that I became very interested in how forms mean, how they mean, not Mm -hmm. what they mean particularly. How do they mean something? When you see a picture of a woman dancing in the street in Paris, how does that transfer its meaning to you? Mm -hmm. And that's what semiotics is. It's the study of how that happens to you or how that happens with you actually. So that's how I got interested in it. There was a guy up at uh, the school that I went to who had made sort of a career at teaching this. And so I glommed onto his um, his program.
2: Now, was this at the Rhode Island School of Design? Yeah, it okay. was
1: there. Um, okay. So-
2: and so after that you came back to New York to continue your work as a designer?
1: Well I thought that's what I was gonna do, but what I actually ended up doing was working for the AIGA, which was a fantastic job. I got to spend all their money, which was fun. <laughs> I was the director.
2: So did that mean that you did uh conferences and
1: Yeah, conferences and uh all the publications and all the the um oh, uh what is it when you put things on the wall? <laughs> Crits? <laughs> no, uh gallery oh, promotion without. and yeah, public publicity. And, <laughs> yeah, all that stuff. I didn't really um we did um I'm sorry, my, I'm having like Natalia Brain what, Oh it's Friday afternoon. I like, totally oh, understand. Lord Um Competitions, conferences, oh, okay. all that
2: stuff. So, yeah. so did you find? Did you start injecting some of this uh, wonderful semiotic analysis and try to stuff <laughs> that
1: into the AIGA? I did. It was really. It, it, I was really lucky that at the time that I worked there, uh, the uh, the environment was right for me to sort of do what I wanted. So I would do things like have the you know have a hundred years of Dutch design come over, and then I would have people come and speak about the things. I was interested in you know it was yeah. the perfect situation to just basically blare out the things that I was interested in um so that's those, that's what a great kind of position to be in if you have a lot of ideas
2: now did you know that you always wanted to work in the creative field or in a creative field you no know,
1: it was more for me a question of um trying to get out of working in a creative field because my family is very much you know I come from a background of uh, painters and writers so I'm just being a good girl by being in this business. Oh,
2: okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not
1: kicking away from anything. I wish I were. I think if I had been a real radical, I would have become a dentist. Oh,
2: God. I love that. Uh, and it's like Emily <laughs> Oberman. She's, she comes from a, a family of graphic designers. And so, you know, for her to do something dramatic would have been, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no,
1: really, it is. It's really, It's really sad. And, you know, it's going into the next generation. My nieces and nephews are the same. They're all designers.
2: Well, Natalia, we have to take our break. Um, I want to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, educator, brand consultant, and author, Natalia Elin. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away.
1: Business, you'll
3: find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Hi, this is Eric Ryan, co-founder of Google Soap Company Method. Here today to talk to you about Fuse, the annual event for design and culture, brand identity and packaging. Fuse is taking place April 22nd to 24th at the Hotel Nico in my beautiful hometown of San Francisco. Fuse has been the top destination for corporate superstars and design legends for more than 10 years. This year, I'll be talking about the Method brand on Thursday, April 23rd, along with some other brilliant thinkers from McDonald's, Victoria's Secrets, and more. Also joining us is the always amazing Dan Pink, author of A Whole New Mind. And every April, hundreds of design legends and corporate superstars converge at Fuse to join the brand design community and redefine the next generation of brand strategy and design. Time to move beyond the fear and the uncertainty and start a conversation that celebrates possibility, opportunity, and change. Fuse promises to deliver the information, inspiration, and camaraderie that you need to stay on top, focus, strong, and renewed. So register today at www.iirusa.com forward slash fuse and receive a 25% discount courtesy of Debbie Millman and the Design Matters Show. Hope to see you there.
1: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
0: We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman.
2: Welcome back. It is 3.32 Eastern Time in New York City. It is 12.32 in Seattle where Natalia Amin is. And you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, educator, brand consultant, author, Natalia Elvine. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Natalia, our phone lines are open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And Ruben is telling me we do have a caller. We have Gregory on the line. Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters.
0: Debbie, I missed you last week.
2: Oh, well, we had Nate Voss interviewing Joe Duffy, and I know they were disappointed you didn't call in.
0: Oh, darn it, I'm sorry. Do okay. <laughs> oh, you have a question for is Natalia? No, I do. Um, the first thing is, I, I just want to say, um, it, it, if that stuff on your head is going to make your your uh, scalp peel, it, wigs,
1: wigs, it's okay. There's, you know, it wigs? wigs. The problem with wigs, <laughs> the heat, is the that heat. you have a lump of hair, <laughs> and you have to smash it down. I know. I know, but, but, I, I, just had but horrible, I appreciate your concern. I was like, oh, my yeah. God,
0: it's not worth it. Please don't. Okay. <laughs> the other thing I, I would want to comment on and go back to um, what you said earlier about symbol searchers and the train schedulers. Um, I think it's so true. Uh, I, you, we are attracted to those opposite people. Uh, I know this. I mean, I'm a water sign, so everything has meaning to me. Everything has, ah. you know, deep meaning for me. and um, I'm always – taking things that belong to my grandparents and surrounding myself with them. And I am uh, married to someone who is the absolute polar opposite and always saying to me, you're a superstitious old lady. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And you know, but what I want to say is um, the reason I believe the reason we're attracted and I I do believe that the attraction is very unconscious uh, is that there's something in us as symbol searchers that that person who is is the train scheduler needs. If there's something they are emotionally, consciously or unconsciously responding to that they need, that they don't have themselves,
3: that is very
0: powerful and attractive to them. And conversely, um, and unconsciously, the symbol searcher finds themselves going for the train schedulers because those people are so direct and so grounded um, huh. to almost default, to those of us who are symbol searchers would feel um, that that we need that kind of uh, safety valve in someone like that.
3: Huh. so I always believe that it
0: it's a i I don't believe it's always an easy thing to be involved with to deal with the opposites, but I believe it's sort of a um, a, a cosmic pull. What would you say to that?
1: I would say you're darn right <laughs> <laughs> the uh again that comes back to the search the human search for opposites and balance and within those opposites and i was just thinking when you were talking about my business partner Pam Heath because although people always try to pigeonhole her since i'm such an airy fairy type of person they assume that she's like the business side of things but actually she has that business side but she also has 100% of that creativity, fairy side too, so that she can respond to the symbol aspect. If you just get the train, the train uh, schedule person, sooner or later, there's this big moment where you realize that so much of your life is not being reflected in the other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of why you know, 40 year old people start to get tired of their boy- husband or whatever. Well, but there's this moment where you're not seeing reflection. Maybe just we narcissists need to see reflection. But, well, I was you know, almost 40 pain before pain. I had
0: someone, so maybe I just waited and it was better that I waited for That time. was wise. <laughs> 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 it was. Believe it wasn't on purpose, but I think the universe just <laughs> thought it was better for me. Anyway, which I just wanted to share that. <laughs> that was wonderful. Thank you. Thank so you for much. calling, Gregory. you. <laughs>
2: Natalia, I can add, I have about 400 other questions oh, I want to ask dear. you about "Blonde Like Me," but I also want to talk about some of your other work. Oh, cool. um, I want to talk about "Chasing the Perfect," your second book, "Chasing the Perfect: Thoughts on Modernist Design in Our Time," also a wonderful book. The interesting thing, the, the interesting thing, or one of the interesting things about your books is that there's a lot of um, wonderful critical theory. Um, There are also some incredibly funny anecdotes, and it's also a little bit part memoir, and you've had such an interesting life and have done so many interesting things, and I love the way you're able to weave these
1: themes all together. Oh, I'm so glad that you think I've had an interesting
2: life. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Actually, I haven't done anything. Oh. I've just
2: been responding to other people's life. Oh, well, I think that then you're incredibly perceptive and <laughs> empathetic. Um, but in Chasing the Perfect, you write a lot. Actually, in both books, you write a lot about the idea of perfection. So where where do humans get the idea of perfect? What is perfect?
1: Oh, see, you know what perfect really is, is completeness, completion. When something is perfect, it's complete. And I think we're always yearning for completion because we're living, we're living, we're we're living in a constant state of flux. Mm-hmm. So the more we're living in a constant state of flux, and you as a New Yorker get that more than anybody, um, the more we yearn for something complete. Uh, and I think that's why we uh, look for it. And also, I am a perfectionist, and mm-hmm. I've had to battle that. Which is a is not a great thing. Yeah, not a great thing to be a perfectionist. Well, especially if if
2: nothing you do ever makes you feel yeah. good or I mean, or that you've ever accomplished perfection. That's you know that's something I I really battle with.
1: That's a terrible thing, and I yeah, and I think that you and I are in a business that um, inculcates perfectionism, or maybe in what way? What do you mean? Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> design is very much a. The perfect career for somebody with OCD.
2: Why do you think so? Right? Because
1: it has to be. It has, there's a there's a grid put on people, and that uh, in their education of the way, the proper way to do things. And even though we've lived through postmodernism, there's still that grid because no one's really found another way to teach design. Mm-hmm. That grid is the modernist grid, and that's what I was responding to in chasing the perfect. In that you take people who are naturally artistic or designers, which I think are sort of two different things, mm-hmm. and you put them in an education which, which is an ice cube tray, and this, there are very clear right and wrong answers, and even doing things wrong, there's a right way to do things wrong. Yes. In design. Yes, of wrong. course.
2: Look at after <laughs> Dr. David Carson the doing his work. The appropriate
1: yeah. ragged edge, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, People come out of programs like that trying to do the right thing, trying to be perfect. And it actually holds our, as it holds an individual back, it also holds our, uh, our design culture back. Cause there How only do you we think it holds it back? Well, if there's only a right and wrong answer, mm-hmm. there's no gray area. There's no acceptable gray area. And that's why, you know, I, I don't like the smallness of that acceptable area.
2: You said just a moment ago that you felt that being a designer and being artistic weren't always the same thing. Right? No,
1: not at all. I think, you know, the, the old canard is that designers solve problems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm. I think they're completely opposite, but they use the same tools. Just the way Barbara Kruger is an artist, but she uses the tools that we use, the tools of design. Yeah. You know, they, they look very similar, but they're not. I think designers are about solving other people's problems. They really are. Mm-hmm. Or they identify problems in the culture and they solve them. Whereas an artist, and I ha- I'm surrounded by artists here. I can't, I can't get away from artists. To me, and these are just sweeping generalizations, but an artist is someone who has something he has to say and spends his life or her life getting it out of his system. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is a very different set of parameters,
2: You write in Chasing the Perfect that perhaps all designers designing today are really displaced people. We live (laughs) in the 21st century, but we were trained to live in another world. Our lost world is not one of birch trees and troikas, but one invented 100 years ago by people who dreamed utopian dreams. We live here in our now. We design here for our now in a world that is far from that utopia, as Blade Runner is from Pride and Prejudice. We design for now, but we cling to, uh, but we cling to the broken shards of other people's dreams for what the world could be. Can Can you talk a little bit about why you feel that way? Uh, well, I'd like to know what you think. <laughs> <about> <laughs> I wish we could really have a conversation. I know. I, I think I think that in a lot of ways that's very very true it's really interesting. I was talking to a group of people a couple of weeks ago about um, how much people love text messaging and Facebooking and and things like that. And the audience seemed to be really, really um, upset about the fact that so many people like to do this and and spend their time sort of Twittering away, so to speak. Literally. Yeah. And um, Mm -hmm. they thought it was really terrible. And I said, well, I don't think that anybody that's doing it thinks it's really terrible. No. It's I only the people you know,
0: that are doing think it stuff
2: like that, that. Think I just it's think terrible. I think people are nuts
1: when they say stuff like that. That's just yeah. ridiculous. I mean, these are interesting things, and people should explore them. I think everyone, again, it's that balancing thing. If you spend, you know, 24 hours a day twittering, you might want to look at that. Mm. But to incorporate those things in our in our life, for me, that's just fun. I, I, I have other things that I'm sort of a, a Luddite about. but those are What are you a Luddite about? about? Oh, let me think. I like tea parties. Okay. You know, I like, I like, I'm, for a person who's always being accused of being sort of a radical, I, I like tradition very much, social traditions. Well,
2: that goes back to those dualities,
0: right?
1: Yes, I guess so. I guess the more way out there I get in my head, the more I uh, dress very conservatively and stuff like that. You know, my students always laugh at me because I wear little gold earrings. I mean, I, don't, I have no interest in, in looking bizarre because I'm so bizarre on the inside.
2: Do you really think that you're bizarre?
1: Extremely. And I think, you know, you just made me think of something. Between the perfectionism and the refugee thing, you know, that's a sort of an interesting place to be caught. My well, talk about that. talk a, a little refugee. bit about the refugee thing because I want to make sure my listeners know that, that uh, other thing that you do. <laughs> oh well, I have a I have a nonprofit organization called Sister Scarf, which is a refugee relief organization, and we don't have a website, so don't bother going looking for one because but we you do, do. You do have one, so people could go and look. Oh, at I that. have my own personal yes. one, yeah, but not yes. for Sister Scarf. We right. do refugee relief for Burmese uh, displaced Burmese, and since they're stateless, they can get in trouble. And get uh, deported, or worse, if they are recognized on a website. So we don't we don't have a presence on the web. But I, so we do refugee relief and microgrants for that. And the reason I do that, aside from the fact that I I got hooked up with the Burmese, is that my father was a refugee and he he escaped from the Soviet Union. So refugeeism and place are very important to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And
1: maybe that does fit in with um, the perfectionism aspect or the, the completeness. Or
2: just feeling comfortable in your own skin and feeling safe.
1: Well, you know, Wallace Stegner, did you read that article yesterday or a couple days ago about Wallace Stegner in the yeah. paper? No. In the Times, there was an article about he would have been 100 years old, this author. this He's always called a Western author, but he wasn't really. Wallace Stegner said that if you don't know where you're from, you won't know who you are. And Mm. I think that's very important, um, not just for everyday people, but also for designers. You know, that's why I I stamp on history so hard.
2: Now, but in in chasing the perfect, you quoted Corbusier, and you said that he said that the home is a machine for living, and and they use it also in I guess in relation to that that you felt that a home is not a habitat, and I, I find it so interesting to have. The sort of symbol the symbology <laughs> of home deconstructed in this way because i've always been a real homebody i mean my favorite <sighs> place to be is home alone with a loved one and my dogs and my cats and i i have this Longing to be there when I'm not there for long. Uh-huh. I was away for just a week this last week, and I had the most terrible homesickness. Yeah. Um. So, what is what do you think home symbolizes? <clears throat> if, if it's not about
1: a habitat, um, what what does it mean to people to be home? Oh, that's such a complex question, and it's actually one that I'm um, I'm pursuing in the in the manuscript that would not die, which is my current um, book, it's supposed yeah. to be out, and it's not even off my desk yet about home and identity. I mean, I'm so interested in that. It's so amazing to me, Debbie, that you picked up on that without even knowing about this book that I'm writing. Um, Home is the place that you can be your complete self, or for me, it is. And it is the opposite of space. And in this world, the world is space, right? So your life needs to be um, balanced between home and space, mm-hmm. and in our world, we have such a huge amount of space. We have existential space, which I actually quoted in the "Chasing the Perfect Thing." This, 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 this incredible space that we find ourselves in emotionally and spiritually, in which we have no connections, and then we have the space of everyday living. You know, you go out there and cars go by you and stuff like. And so home is the refuge from that. So it acts as a refuge, but it also acts as a place in which you can, you can participate not only in the life of the culture, but in your own individual spiritual life, or, you know, another word for that would be just <clears throat> your own inner life, whatever you're interested in for you. Mm-hmm. and all the ramifications between that place and your culture. So there's a huge number of things that have to happen um, in a home to make you really feel at home and not to make you feel like you're in a a decorator showroom. Right. Um,
2: You quoted your father in a a wonderful Metropolis article that you wrote last year in the the magazine Metropolis, Um, and you wrote that he used to say, that home is not a place you can take home with you. You carry it with you. Yeah. And I was really thinking about that this week because I was so homesick.
1: Well, you know, you should really talk to my father. First of all, he's <laughs> ninety years old, and he is just the most in- interesting guy. And I basically steal all my best ideas from him. Matter like of fact, that home and space thing, he was always talking about that when I was a kid. Well, a lot of this is <clears throat> is being transmitted from by me from him. Um, but he, uh, he definitely has the stance of the refugee that the h- home lies within you and that it doesn't matter what happens on the outside. Right. It only oh, I can
2: only – that that is something to really try to attain.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, do you think so? Because I said, you know, I think that that is a stance taken by people who feel as though they are refugees or who already feel abandoned by their culture. Oh. You have to say – the only thing that's important is what's within.
2: Well, it's very well to go lost. back to Everything. my profound abandonment issues.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll join the club. <laughs>
2: But what, what one of my dearest friends once uh, said when somebody once says was once asking me if I would ever consider moving out of Manhattan and, and my dear friend Sue was with me at the time I was being asked and she looked at the person and she said Oh no 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 Debbie does not feel comfortable unless she feels pavement
1: under her feet <laughs> So <laughs> <laughs> well exactly that and see that's a that's an indexical sign for home for you Yeah, it's just standing there on the pavement. That's a great sign. But one of the, one of the, some of the questions that
2: you ask in chasing the perfect you ask What is the emotional toll of having no place to call home? What is the psychic result of moving for the company every three years? What is the price of a Best Buy and Staples at every 40-mile interval along the interstate of suburban houses that could as easily be in North Carolina as in California? And then there was another thing that you wrote in, um, in Blonde Like Me that struck me as so profound and so yeah, profoundly mysterious about why women like to see all bridesmaids all wearing the same dresses. Same dress. So what is it about this sameness that we seem to seek in a culture where every airport you go in and every place in the world now looks exactly the same? There's a Starbucks and there's a Burger King and, you know, what is it about the way that we are living our lives now that it, that this is occurring?
1: Well, you know, I think that when you talk about airports, airports um, are designed you know, we originally thought, oh, we're designing them with all this universal typography and everything to make it easier for people. But really what we've realized is that, that um, having all airports the same reduces travel anxiety in people because they don't feel scared because they've seen it all before and they right. know that that Starbucks is going to be there. It's comforting. Right, it is. The same is is comforting.
2: Yeah, and, you know, listen to me. I'm the one who, you know, drinks Starbucks every day, so
1: who am I to say? (laughs) You know, being from Seattle, Starbucks is a word that has a lot of ramifications
3: right now, so you might.
1: Yes. (laughs) Well, we only have about five or six minutes left
2: for the show, so I have to talk to you about branding. I'm leaving about about 40 questions on the table oh, but let's talk about branding just okay. for a little bit. First of all, you wrote a marvelous piece on your blog recently <coughs> called Branding Must Die. <laughs> so I want to read a little bit about, I want to read a quote from that, oh, and then I want to read a quote from uh, Blonde Like Me about branding, and okay. then and then let's talk for, for okay. five minutes about branding. So in, in the article on your blog, which I really encourage people to see, to go and read, net. Um, wherein you confide that you are a person deeply involved in helping businesses figure out who they are, how they differ from their competitors, and why anyone should care. And yet you have recently developed an antipathy for calling that business activity brand work or branding. Just in the last few weeks, you've begun to associate brand and all the swish and swashbooks about it with an era just gone by, an era in which free market economics ruled and lipstick on a pig was the grin of the day around the marketing meeting table. Since the Obama election, the word brand just somehow has an aroma of ups, obfuscation, of finding ways <laughs> to sell people things that are bad for them, of lying to the customer, and that ultimately branding must die. <laughs> so that was that was a quote from your blog. And then this is a quote. This is, this is one of my favorites from Blonde Like Me. You've written, our economy depends on our feeling like toads. If you liked your wonderful self all that much, would you go out and buy that age-defying lotion, the new blow dryer with the frizzy styling wand, that under-eye corrective concealer? Of course not. The American economy would come to a Bugs Bunny heel-screeching stop if tomorrow every woman in the country woke up, took a look in the mirror, wrapped her arms around herself, and said, I just love the good old me. So, so we have four minutes to talk I'm about this, tell you're going to have to come back. We're going to have to do a part two, because there's just so much still left to oh, talk so about. Oh, so kind of you. Um, so, tell me about why branding
1: must die. I guess that's the well, only question I have something. time to I, ask you. My, my business partner and I, uh, at Emerson Harris, which is the name of our company, <clears throat> we spend a lot of time with technico- technological clients, since we're out here in Seattle. Right. And brand for technology is often <clears throat> considered this charming phrase, lipstick on a pig. Right. And I'm really sick of that. I'm just sick of it. I'm, I'm sick just of sick of hearing, hearing that,
2: that statement.
3: <laughs> how many times have you So
1: ugly. That? Oh, my Lord. It's an ugly statement, and it's, it doesn't show a lot about what they think of their own selves and their own product. Right. You know, if they're, they're looking at their product as something that has to be dressed up. I don't really want to be involved with that product. Right. I want to be involved with a product that has values intrinsically that I can then say, hey, this is a story. This is a story that I can tell. It's not going to hurt our culture and not going to foul the waters and other things like that. So, I also, the word brand, just from a semiotic, or not really semiotic, but more semantic thing, is like, you know, like burning something onto the side of a steer. Now, I'm not that interested in burning things onto the side of a steer. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in things that grow out, stories that grow out of the product, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm just sick of hearing about branding. I don't want to hear that word anymore. It reminds me very much of spin and, oh, market talk and getting things over on people. And If I were in a business, I mean, I could make a lot more money in another business if I wanted to get things over on people. Right. I didn't get into the brand business because of an uh, intrinsic need to lie.
2: Yeah, we could go, we could have gone into finance.
1: We could have made some money. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah, look where we would be now, getting free money from the government. But we right. won't go into that. Um, so yeah, so that's why I've just had it, and also I've run into a few hacks recently that if I see one more person like that, I'm just gonna I'm gonna sh- shoot someone. Yeah. No, so. I think that it's
2: it's very difficult. I guess. You know, we just have to try to heed Mr. Glazer, you know, with the edict, do no harm.
1: That's right, Do 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 no harm. And also, you know, if you work for companies or people, and preferably people and companies that you admire, who do things in the world that are appropriate, then I don't think you can go far wrong.
2: I agree, and I think it's a wonderful a wonderful note too to finish the show on. I cannot believe we've come to the end of the broadcast today. I know. We've talked to you for hours, Natalia. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Oh, thank you, Debbie. I'd also A like real to thang- treat.
2: Oh, thank you. I'd like to thank my staff and partners at Sterling Brands and all the wonderful people at Voice America for helping out so much especially Lisa Grant and Jen Simon. Joining me on next week's broadcast is the editor and designer of Communication Arts, Patrick Coyne. They are celebrating their 50th anniversary. In a time of such upheaval in the publishing world, it'll be very interesting to talk to a person who has really helped define the publishing industry and the design community. So thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next
1: week.
0: Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters, right here on The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business.